Welcome to Murder Most Foul, a podcast devoted to exploring famous murder cases of our time. Some solved, some unsolved, but all fascinating and guaranteed to raise the hairs on the back of your neck. I'm your host, Jim Solonowski. Today's episode... The Crossbow Incident. Barrington, Rhode Island, 1991. It was a crime like none other. It was a high-profile, media-drenched disappearance of an entire family. The people of the small town of Barrington were stunned when 53-year-old Ernest Brendel, his 46-year-old wife Alice, and their 8-year-old daughter Emily vanished without a trace. With many indications leading to the conclusion that violence had played an integral part in the mystery. In preparing this podcast, I spent months in an attempt to find individuals associated with the crime, the investigation, and the subsequent trial of Christopher Hightower to help me understand this most brutal crime. Those in the media and law enforcement at the time, which I was able to track down, were reluctant to dredge up the memories of the horrific, cold-blooded murders. Perseverance paid off, and I was able to enlist the help of Logan Crawford, Emmy Award-winning newsman, who at the time was working at WPRI-TV in Providence, Rhode Island. Well, Jim, this really is a dark journey, and I can see why a lot of people were reluctant to talk about it, because in my career as a broadcaster, this is the most horrific story I've ever covered because it was just so cold-blooded, so calculated. And Christopher Hightower, the man behind these murders, most calculating, cold-blooded murderer I've ever seen. He uh, was willing to lie about anything to get his way out of the mess his life had become. And uh, being in a courtroom with him was like being around pure evil. This story focuses on Christopher Hightower, a one-time Sunday school teacher and a failed commodities broker, and a successful lawyer by the name of Ernest Brindell and his family, his wife Alice, who was a librarian at uh, Brown University, and their lovely daughter Emily, who went to a public school in this little storybook town of Rhode Island's uh, Barrington. Just to give you a little overview, I was on this case from the night that the family disappeared to the day Christopher Hightower was arrested, to the afternoon when the family was found buried up the road, throughout the entire trial and the conviction of Christopher Hightower. So I'm very well acquainted with this crime. It was the evening of September 1991. My desk told me a family had vanished from a house on Middle Highway in Barrington, Rhode Island. And it was chilling just to get that assignment that a family had vanished. And I went to the house 
And the whole neighborhood, this idyllic neighborhood, all the kids were standing around on their bikes talking about it, moms and dads looking on. Uh, they couldn't believe that this family was missing. And for a long time, that's how we covered this story, that a family simply vanished. It didn't become a murder case until much later on. The police were completely tight-lipped about this. They told me very, very little. They told other reporters very, very little. Interestingly enough, as soon as I got to the scene, a young man, probably 14 or 15 years old, a resident of the area, said to me, the entire family is missing, but they think they were murdered in the garage. The police told us very, very little. They played it very close to their vests. And day after day, night after night, we were reporting that a family had simply vanished. And at one point, I actually brought in a top homicide detective from the Metro New York area, a guy by the name of John Nolan. He was the head of the homicide squad for the Nassau County PD. And I had him look at the case. And he and I produced a series of special reports called Brutal Suspicion. And we looked at what might have happened to the Brindell family, knowing what we knew before the bodies were found. And we found out about the trip to the hardware store that uh, Hightower had made and the different purchases he had made, including muriatic acid. And John Nolan was pretty much right on the money. He had figured that Hightower had killed the family. And he figured that the muriatic acid was used to clean up the crime scene. And he figured that in the panic of killing three people, that their bodies would be recovered very, very close to where they were murdered. And with that said, he was right on all accounts. Well, amazingly enough, and I say this to you now, it's a good thing Christopher Hightower wasn't smart. He was clearly a sociopath. He clearly had no conscience. He clearly would do anything to save his own hide. And lives meant nothing to him. And he could do it completely in cold blood. Except he wasn't very smart. Which is why he failed at everything. Including this crazy swindle or attempted swindle of Christine Scriabine, who is the sister of Ernest Brindell. So he gets in the car, Ernest Brindell's car. I believe it was a Camry, covered with blood, drives to Guilford, Connecticut, which is about an hour and a half away. He goes to this very well-heeled suburb of the Hartford area, I guess it is, and speaks to Christine and her husband and says, listen, Ernie and Alice and Emily have all been kidnapped. Ernie was working as a drug dealer and he owed the money, the mob money, and that he wanted to be the go-between or he's working as a go-between between these enforcers and the people who are holding the Brendels hostage and now trying to seek money from Christine Scriabine. Now the whole thing was ludicrous. She saw right through it. 
He realized that she saw through it and then tried to convince her. He showed Ernest's driver's license. He even showed her the car that he was driving, which was Ernest's, and the blood in the back of the car. And at that point, he realized that the jig was up and that she was probably going to contact authorities. So as after he left, he calls her up and says, forget about it. I don't need your money. I'm going to come up with the money myself. But of course, she did not forget about it. She called the FBI. And then he was arrested on extortion charges. By the time Hightower visited Ernest Brendel's sister Christine in Connecticut, unfortunately, the family was already dead. Nobody knows exactly what happened in that house in Barrington over the course of a couple of days. We do know that three people died. We do know three people were murdered. We do know a horrific weapon was used, a high-powered crossbow. We also know that diphenhydramine was used, which is Benadryl. And that was used apparently as a drug to sedate Emily and to sedate Alice. The only one killed with the crossbow was Ernest Brindell. And this is perhaps the most evil thing he did during the course of these couple of days was he retrieved young Emily from her after-school program at the Barrington YMCA. So that aspect of the crime actually changed the procedure for picking up children from that point on because he was able to pick up Emily with just a phone call pretending to be Ernest Brindell to the YMCA. The woman at the YMCA let Emily go off with her murderer unbeknownst to her. So after this point, people needed passcodes and special words and things like that to get picked up from an after-school program. So it's an aside, but it's one of the fallouts of this case that letting children go with somebody other than a parent was very dangerous business. Um, Alice takes the bus back from Providence and walks home. Usually Ernest is there waiting for her. That night he wasn't. And finds Christopher Hightower in the house. What happened in the house? Nobody knows. Obviously, it was a chamber of horrors. Now, my people that I spoke to believe that Ernest was not killed immediately, but rather he was held at crossbow point and tortured in front of his family as he tried to get Ernest to turn over money that Hightower believed was in the house. So he shot him with one of the bolts from the crossbow. And then again, with the children, wife and child watching, he tried to torture this man to say, hey, where is the money? I know you keep it in the house. But apparently there wasn't any money. And which is why he came up with the alternate plan of, well, maybe I can extort money from Brindell's sister and pretend that um, a go-between in some kind of kidnapping case. So it was a crazy plot, a crazy plan from a man whose entire life was falling apart. His wife had kicked him out of the house. He had been seen riding around town on a children's bicycle. His business has, had failed. His last client, Ernest Brindell, had not only severed ties with him, but also it turned him into the trading commission with a complaint that could result in him losing his license. 
Apparently, Alice was strangled with the scarf, also sedated first with diphenhydramine. And little Emily, well, some believe she was actually buried alive, that she was drugged with the diphenhydramine, but actually buried underneath her mother about a mile from the house. Um, well, it was a gorgeous Rhode Island fall morning and afternoon. And my assignment desk said, Logan, a dog walker has stumbled upon something that appears to be a shallow grave in Barrington, not far from where the house was, where the family was missing from. So I got with my crew and we uh, drove to uh, the uh, road of the property of St. Andrew's School. And there was a huge crime scene. Lots of TV live trucks. Boston had put up helicopters overhead. There were police helicopters as well. There were canine units. And this was a long process because a dog walker had found what right away officials presumed to be the bodies of Ernest, Alice, and Emily Brindell. So they spent a lot of time at this gravesite in order to preserve evidence. Again, the police were very, very tight-lipped. I remember going up to one of the sergeants that I knew at the Barrington Police Department. And I said, Sergeant, is that the family in there? And he said, we're not allowed to say anything, Logan. And I didn't tell you it is. So at that point, he had tipped me off that that was indeed the family that was buried in shockingly close distance to the house. And, um, you know, it was planned out. Apparently, uh, Hightower was covered with mud when he returned at one point to his wife Susan's house because he had dug that grave. So in one grave, they find Ernest Brindell with wounds from a crossbow, as well as his skull smashed, at least in part, in another shallow grave right next to it, they found Alice Brindell. And there was no third grave, which they were very, very happy about. People had one last bit of hope that somehow, some way, maybe Emily was alive. And then they moved Alice's body. And that's when they found Emily buried beneath her mother. And later we would learn she possibly was buried alive. The trial of Christopher Hightower, which began on March 8, 1993, with Judge John F. Sheehan presiding, was as surreal as the crime itself. The prosecution's case was strong. Hightower decided to take the stand in his own defense. In several days of testimony and cross-examination, he told a rambling, incoherent, and often contradictory account of what he witnessed. He stuck to his claim that the Brendel family died as the result of a mob kidnapping gone wrong. It was bizarre to realize that he was indeed the only eyewitness, seeing as he perpetrated the heartless murders himself. There's one key player of the trial, and that was Christopher Hightower himself. 
It was actually quite shocking that he took the stand, but there was so much evidence against him from, you know, blood in the car that he drove to fingerprints to forged checks and forged documents that it was clear that he was guilty. So his role of the dice was to get on the witness stand. And over a number of days, I believe it was five days, he gave absolutely incredible testimony. And when I say incredible, I mean absolutely not credible at all. He tried to blame the attack on the Brendels on two six foot five Chinese men. At that point, the judge interrupted his testimony and said, excuse me, two six foot five Chinese men? I've never met a Chinese man who was that tall in my entire life. But he got up there and he told his pack of lies. He was dressed like a college professor. He had a Tweety sport coat on and a turtleneck. He was bespectacled. He had his beard and he uh, just looked like a college professor. And he was extremely calm. At times he cried, at times he wiped away tears as he told his crazy tale that just was too ludicrous to be believed. Um, but apparently he thought that was his only chance. But uh, the jury saw right through it. They deliberated for six hours and came back with a guilty on all charges conviction. Now, Hightower's answer to almost everything in life was to kill or to destroy. When his wife uh, wanted a divorce, he threatened to kill her, her sister, their children. Uh, he was vicious. In fact, he told his wife, do you know how much a human life is worth? He said it's worth $5,000 because the hitmen I have hired are charging me that much to kill you. And they, for another $1,000, they will make it look like an accident. And the investigators I spoke to about Hightower they said, if you were to look through his background, his entire life, just as if you were to look through any person's background who is a sociopath, you'd probably find a lot of dead people that they had come in contact with. For example, apparently he did not want to take oral exams as part of his master's program, so he allegedly set a library on fire to delay the exams which he ultimately did not take. He ultimately dropped out of the program. And ultimately, he just lied on his resume and said he had a PhD. So this is a man who lied, murdered, swindled his entire life in absolutely cold blood. But fortunately, he was not smart. Very problematic sociopaths are those who are extremely smart and can completely cover up. He wasn't very good at covering up because his story was, you know, beyond, beyond belief. He was a father and a husband, a Sunday school teacher, a financial trader. He dressed well. He was married into a very prominent family in Barrington who were well healed. So on the surface, everything was right. But scratch that surface just a little bit and everything was wrong and evil and dark. It's interesting, he was the counselor of troubled teens for that church in Barrington. Can you imagine this man who was such an evil monster counseling others 
who are vulnerable and troubled. So that's why it was so evil to be around him, because he was your next door neighbor who seemed like the nice guy on the block who turned out to be the devil. How does one explain a monster like Christopher Hightower? In his own words, from the witness stand, he said, I can't understand anyone who would kill someone for money or a child. And yet, that's exactly what he did. He wiped out an entire family for money, including an eight-year-old child. Alan B. Feinstein, the psychologist from the prison at the time, recalled that examining Hightower was one of the most chilling experiences of his career. He would give you the creeps, Feinstein said. Hightower exhibited no humanity at all. You look into those eyes and you don't see a soul. There's just nothing there. It's just hardcore evil personified. There was a dark shadow cast by Christopher Hightower that will always, unfortunately, shade the lives of anybody who came into contact with him. And those most closely associated with him, his wife and children, obviously are darkened somewhat by that shadow as they try to move on from their lives. I don't know, maybe you never tell your children that your father was Christopher Hightower. Um, Maybe that's impossible not to tell, but I don't know how you deal with it. Um, You know, maybe they found out during the media coverage that their dad was accused of this horrible crime, but uh, it was bone chilling. The only type of evil that I feel kind of compares to this was the massacre in Newtown, Connecticut of all the little children. Uh, It was that kind of horrific crime. And the lies told about it made it worse. The mystery that was uh, surrounding it made it horrible and prolonged. Um, And some of the police investigators, realizing that this was their quote-unquote career case, um, were not the nicest towards the media either in trying to get the word out to the public. So it was kind of a dark time in Rhode Island for sure. Christopher Hightower, now 68 years old, resides in the Menard Correctional Facility about 50 miles southeast of St. Louis. He will no doubt never see the light of day. Small consolation for the families he destroyed, in addition to the small town of Barrington, Rhode Island, which will never be the same. I'd like to thank Logan Crawford, without whose contribution this podcast would not have been possible.